Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. I want to uh, ask you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel according to Luke, the second chapter. On Wednesday night, I preached a message about uh, the the life that we live in the natural. Uh, There's a time when the angels go away. There's a time when you just have to get up and go to work. And uh, last Wednesday night, I preached on that. This morning, I want to preach on the mystery of the incarnation, the mystery of Christmas. Now, before I say this next sentence, I'm asking the ushers to lock the doors. And here it is. Today, I want to give you a teaching on the theology of the incarnation. Now, I know the minute you say the word theology, a lot of Christians just say, oh, no. In fact, I've even heard people say, I'm no theologian. You ever heard that? I'm no theologian. Well, yes, you are. If you think you're not a theologian, you're probably just a bad one. The theologian means what you believe to be true about God. Now, I I pray that this morning, this will not be a boring and tedious teaching on the theology of the incarnation, but Christmas, there's no way to comprehend Christmas in terms of just Christmas cards. Christmas is about the incarnational mystery of the coming of Christ. So I want us to read uh, the second chapter, part of the, from the second chapter of the gospel according to Luke. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. And this taxation was made, first made when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all that went to be registered, everyone in his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his espoused wife, who was great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. In other words, her pregnancy came to full term, and it was time for the baby to come. Verse 7, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. One, the, the first chapter of John sort of summarizes all of the Christmas stories. And it says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the father. Can I give you sort of the revised Rutland version of verse 14? Here it is. All of humanity is on a camping trip, each of us carrying our tents with us. And Jesus came and pitched his tent in the middle of our tents. And his tent looked just like ours, but his tent was full of the glory and power and majesty of God. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, I pray that your Holy Spirit will so invade this moment, all of those in this room and all of those watching worldwide, God, I pray that you will be where we are and within us and that you will brush aside every barrier to divine communication that when we leave here today, we will say, surely the Lord hath spoken unto us in the wonderful, 
sweet holy name, Jesus, the strong son of God. Amen. The wonder of the incarnation is that the word of God came to dwell in a fully human being. That is such a simple thing to say, but it's so huge that we can hardly dilate our faith and our intellect wide enough to get around it. I want you to grasp this. Why did God send his son to be in the form of a human being? What was, what was it all about? Why that? Here was the problem. The problem was that humanity languished in, our, in its sins. You know the Christmas hymn, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he arose and the soul felt its worth. We had to have some kind of sacrifice for our sins. We couldn't supply it ourselves, a lamb or a bullock or a goat. These things were temporary. They wouldn't, they wouldn't last forever. We needed an eternal sacrifice, eternal blood. Secondly, it had to be the blood of a human being. The, we had to, we couldn't have a goat to die for us. A human being had to die for us. Third, it had to be a, a sinless human being. That's where Satan thought he had us. It had to be a real human being. An angel couldn't die in our place because an angel couldn't die a blood death. Blood had to be shed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So Satan said, God will never find a real human being. God couldn't come in the spirit form of God and die for us because spirit cannot shed blood. So he said, the only perfect one is God, and God cannot die for us because he can't shed blood. An angel couldn't shed blood, and no human being was perfect. That was the paradox where Satan thought he had God trapped. It had to be a human, and the human had to be perfect. He thought he had us. See, it had to be a blood death. If Jesus had lived a perfect, sinless life and died of pneumonia at 95 in a nursing home in Bethlehem, then we all would go to hell. It had to, he had to die a blood death. But how can God, who is a spirit, have blood? That's the essence of the problem. The answer was the incarnation. The word of God, pre-existent, co-eternal, the second person of the Trinity that existed before light was spoken into existence, the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and that word became flesh in her virgin womb, and the child that she brought forth was Jesus. The answer was also the problem, because the child had to be a real human being, a real human being. It couldn't be an idea or a theological construct or an angel. It couldn't be a spirit that floated into the room. It had to be a real human being. So here's the catechetical response that Jesus was very God and very man, very God and very man, not half and half. That's Greek mythology. He wasn't a demigod. He was altogether God and altogether human. He wasn't God from the waist up. He was altogether God, altogether human, all at the same time. That's the mystery of the incarnation. But the problem is, if he's altogether human, then he looked altogether human. The Bible says that he wasn't even handsome. You will never see a Hollywood movie about an ugly Jesus. In Hollywood, all of the Jesus movies, they all look like Mac Powell. Last week in California, when he stood up to sing, I said, whoa, Jesus is here and he's singing. 
But Isaiah says that the Messiah was not handsome. At this stage of my life, that comforts me no end. It hurts me when you laugh at me. My next book is going to be entitled The God of the Ugly. I believe it'll sell millions. No, the problem was that Jesus was real. He looked real. He was real. Now, we understand the divinity of Christ. We like to talk about the supernatural things, the angels, the glory, the shepherds, the three wise men. We like all that. It's the, it's the gritty humanity that we don't like. We want to talk about, have you ever heard anybody say the miraculous birth of Jesus? But the Bible says the birth of Jesus was not miraculous. It was not miraculous at all. The conception of Jesus was miraculous. The immaculate conception that the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and she conceived without a man, she conceived without sex, that is a miracle. But the birth of Jesus was altogether natural. All of the things that were about birth still were part of the birth of Jesus. All of the pain and the blood and the fluid and everything else, all of that was there, all taking place in the unhygienic atmosphere of a cattle stall, all of that. I said to my wife one time, there's no way for a man to really understand the pain of childbirth. She said, sure there is. Grab your lower lip and pull it over your head. <laughs> the birth of Jesus was altogether natural. There, there weren't halos. They didn't have halos. You will almost never see a classical painting of the Holy Family without halos. We like the idea that they, that they had these beautiful halos. We think, see, we think all the people in that day had all read the book of Luke. We think they're operating on a script, you see. But when Jesus, when Mary and Joseph and the donkey came down the streets of Bethlehem, the people didn't poke their heads out of the windows and say, oh, Luke chapter two. There was nothing about them. We see, you know, they're coming into town. Joseph has a halo. Mary has a halo. She's got a little halo over her tummy. The donkey, one halo on each ear. But the, the text we just read this morning, verse 7 says, and they had no halos. Now, you think that's not what it says. It's what it said. And they had no halos. Here's the way the Bible says it. And there was no room for them at the inn. What that means is they had no halos. Somebody shows up at your hotel with a halo, you just buy George, find him a room. You just go down to the poor sucker in 119 and say, I'm sorry, sport, you're out. These people have halos. What you do not do is put people with halos in the garage. No, they didn't look different. They didn't. They didn't radiate. They didn't have halos. They were just a man, a pregnant woman, and this donkey. And the birth was altogether natural. The baby was natural. It was a natural baby. We just can't stand that. We want it to look so beautiful and, and cute and lights and, and lace and everything. That's what Christmas cards look like and all of the beauty and the star and everything. Think about that Christmas hymn, away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus, what? No crying he makes. What's up with that? 
Baby Jesus couldn't cry? How many of you had kids? Raise your hand. How many of you? I'm asking you a question. Did yours crying they made? Mine crying they made. I'm, I'm talking, mine cried like all night. I cherish the idea of Joseph pacing up and down in the cattle stall at three in the morning saying, oh God, I'm not asking you to make him the Messiah, just make him sleep. (laughs) He was a real baby crying he made. Now let me tell you something else. I'm an equal opportunity preacher. I can offend all of you before this sermon's over. And here it is. If I haven't done it yet, this will do it. Not only did Jesus crying he made, he made everything else babies make. He was a real baby with demand at one end and a problem at the other. But see, we just don't like the idea of somebody changing the Lord Jesus diapers. Put that on a Christmas card. But it is theologically important that that was a real baby who had to have his diapers changed. That's theologically important because if that wasn't true, then Jesus, the Bible says he died for us when we were yet helpless. He understands what it's like to be filthy and in need of someone to come and change you and clean you up. He was a real baby. As he grew, he was a real child. Look, that baby lying there, this is the, this is the intellectual challenge of the incarnation for us. And if it was very God and very man, what was that baby thinking? When they took that little baby and laid him at Mary's breast, was he at a cognitive level? Was he laying there thinking, I'm the second person of the Trinity? Co-eternal, pre-existent. Was he thinking about his ministry, about the cross, the descent, his resurrection, the ascension to the right hand of God the Father, the rapture of the church? Was he thinking about those things? No, he's just looking for milk. All of that was within him. But remember, the, uh, uh, the same thing is true of a baby. A little baby is altogether human. There is nothing that will be added to that baby throughout that baby's entire life that will make that baby more human than they are the moment they're born, even in conception. But from the moment of birth, there is nothing that will be added ever at any point to make them more human than they are the minute they're born. That's a very discouraging thought to some of you who are the parents of junior high school boys. But I assure you, they're all together human. They're just in the tadpole stage. There is nothing that is added by the same token. He was altogether God. Do not listen to any blasphemous theology that says Jesus became the Messiah at the time that the Holy Spirit rested on him at the baptism of John Baptist. That's blasphemy. He was the Messiah from the moment he was spoken into the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he was altogether God, altogether human, all at the same time. Now he had to grow into the self-awareness of both of those realities. He had to, a baby has to become aware of itself as a human being. A baby has to begin to to have self-awareness. He had to also grow in his self-awareness of himself as the son of God, the word of God, the Messiah. So he is beginning, think about what this would mean to a little child. 
at 6, 7, 8, 10, 11, 12, he is beginning to recapture his memories of pre-existence in heaven with God. He is remembering and reclaiming who he is as the son of God, the word of God, through whom everything that is made was made and unto whom it will all return. Now that will, that, that may have an effect on a child's mind. He's playing kickball in the street with some kid who muscles him aside and runs off with the ball. Jesus is laying there on the cobblestones thinking, I made you. But the Bible says he had to grow in stature with man and with God. He had to grow into his sense of his humanity and his sense of his divinity all at the same time. The problem was he didn't look supernatural. Jesus, if he had floated into every room that he entered three feet above the ground with shafts of green light coming out from his fingernails, new age music playing in the background, people would have said, hey, hey, we got something here. But the problem was he just looked regular. It was the problem for the disciples. They struggled with it. Am I the only one? Don't you ever think that sometimes that they must have been slow on the uptake? How about the, how about the resurrection of Lazarus? That Jesus walks out into a cemetery. Lazarus is in the grave four days. His body has begun to, has begun to disintegrate. He is already in the process of decay. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man reassembles the molecular structure of his body, takes shape, breath comes in, he gets up and walks out of the grave. Doesn't it seem like somebody in the cemetery would have said, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, Messiah. (laughs) And maybe they did, maybe they did. The problem was not what happened in the cemetery. The problem was what happened on the walk back to Lazarus' house. Everybody believes that God can raise the dead. That was not the problem. The problem was that on the way back to Lazarus' house, they saw Jesus wipe sweat off his brow. The resurrection is not the problem. The sweat is the problem. Can God raise the dead? Yes. Can God sweat? That's the mystery of the incarnation. And he didn't sweat like God, whatever that is. He didn't sweat purple or something. It was just regular human sweat. This is what the disciples struggled with. Is he? Maybe he's not. Maybe he is. I mean, look, you wake up one night and you look across the glowing embers of the campfire and there's Jesus asleep on his bedroll across the campfire. And he's not sleeping divine. He just looks like your brother-in-law on the couch. He's just laying him. And you remember him raising the dead and casting out demons and calming the storm and making the blind see. And you think maybe, maybe then you look at him. And you say, no. That's, that's the whole, the whole answer of the incarnation was that it had to be a real human being. The whole problem of the incarnation is that he was a real human being. 
That's the wonder. That's the mystery of this whole story, that the word preexistent, co-eternal, the second person of the Trinity came into the womb of that virgin girl, took shape as a real human being, real birth, a real life, dealing with real people. The whole event is filled with such radiance and glory and beauty and wonder, but it is all so human. It's so human. I talked about this on Wednesday, that when the angels came to the shepherds, the sky is filled with glory and the angels are singing in the radiance. What a moment that must have been. But where were the shepherds standing? The shepherds are standing in a field full of sheep. And sheep also make things. It's not just babies that make things. Sheep make things. So the shepherd says, oh, look at those angels. Oh, man. That's where, that's where we live. Don't you see? That's the story of the incarnation. The first night, there is nothing about your humanity or anybody's humanity that is beyond the capacity of Jesus to understand it, to have experienced it, and to love and behold it no matter what. The first night of Jesus' life, he spent born to an unmarried woman in a cattle stall. And the last night of his life, he spent on death row. There is nothing that you've ever experienced, no depravity, no humanity to which you have sunk that Jesus cannot understand and comprehend it. It says he was tempted in every way that we are. The only difference was he never sinned. But there is no temptation that you've ever experienced that Jesus didn't understand because he was human. He was human. When he was working in his father's carpenter shop, Year after year after year after year. He knows his messianic mission. He knows he's the son of God. He knows he's the word of God. But his body has submitted itself to the laws of physics and reality. He feels things. He understands pain. Don't you think in all those years working in a shop that he never hammered his thumb? The word of God. Pow. And he's saying, oh, really? Really? And what's he tempted for? What are you tempted with when you hammer your thumb? He said, oh, well, praise you, Father, praise you. That's the, that's the wonderful divine mixture, the mystery of the incarnation. All we've talked about, Pastor and I, is starstruck. The star that came to rest over the cattle stall, that star. I had a college student not too long ago ask me, Said, Dr. Rutland, was that star a natural star or a supernatural star? And I said, yes. Now you're getting it. Yes. That star God moved from its place in the cosmos across the trackless expanse of the sky to come to rest in perfect timing over a cattle stall where an unknown child is being born in an occupied country and drew to it angels and shepherds and wise men and gifts. But when that was over with, God moved that star back in its place, put it right back where it was supposed to be, a natural that serves a supernatural function. That's the mystery of the incarnation. Now you may ask yourself, what does this have to do with me? Two very, very important things. The first is this, that you had to have a blood sacrifice for you. That baby 
did not come just to appear on a Christmas card or be in musicals. The baby came to die for your sins and for mine. That's, that's a, a lot of people don't like to talk about that at Christmas. I have a friend who's a bit of an eccentric pastor of a fairly small church, and he did something at Christmas very unusual. At the end of his church, he put a little creche, a nativity scene, beautiful, all in pink and blue and all that, shined lights on it. It was just beautiful. And then about halfway up the steeple at a 45 degree angle, he suspended on guy wires a rude black cross. And then on the peak of the steeple, he fastened a spotlight on the back of that cross so that the the shadow of that cross fell directly across the face of the baby in the manger. He told me he got hate mail, that people would call up on the church phone and leave messages, take that cross down. We're offended with that. We don't want to see that at Christmas. Just put the baby out. Isn't that amazing? All we want is a Christmas card, and God was giving us the very purpose of our redemption. All we want is a baby in a manger, and he was giving us a Messiah. All we want is a pastel Christmas crash, and he's giving us the wonderful secret of the blood death, the Christ who died for us. The second thing that it is for, that when you ask the question, what's it for for me? The second question is this. That is to say, Jesus is proof that the operation of the Holy Spirit can come to rest in real human beings. Real human beings. That's the reason I've always said that charismatic theology, and by the way, regardless of what anybody says, that's not an oxymoron. That charismatic theology is not really pneumatological. In other words, it's not really about the Holy Spirit. Charismatic theology is actually incarnational. That is to say, the essence of the, of the charismatic movement is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, when the Holy Spirit is operational in our lives, in the same gifts, in the same power that operated in and through the human body of Jesus... Now, obviously, obviously, you're not going to move and operate in the power of that Holy Spirit to the same altitude and velocity of Jesus. The reason is because you're not Jesus. But it's the same Holy Spirit, the same gifts, the same healing power. That's the wonder of Christmas. The wonder of Christmas is not simply the beauty of a baby in a manger. The wonder of Christmas is that this child is proof that there is no one here, no one on death row, no one who's lost in human filth, no one anywhere that needs to go to hell because that baby came for that person to go to heaven. The second thing is that there is no one in the body of Christ, no one in your humanity who cannot receive and walk and live in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the wonder of the incarnational message is that God is not horrified. Listen to this. God is not horrified by your humanity. He is not repulsed by your humanity. He is not disgusted with your humanity. He sent his son, the word of God, came to dwell in a human being that looked just like us. Jesus didn't glow in the dark. He was a real human being filled with the real power of God. And he says, that is exactly what I want to do in you. I can't think 
of a better time than the Christmas season to make sure my salvation is settled, to know that the blood of that eternal sacrifice has cleansed me from my sin. I can't think of a better time than the Christmas season than to say I want the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that touched the Virgin Mary, the same Holy Spirit that touched John the Baptist in his mother's womb, the same Holy Spirit that rested on Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that filled the upper room, the same Holy Spirit that anointed the prophets and the apostles. I want that same Holy Spirit to fill me. I can't think of a better season than Christmas to say I want to know that I'm saved and I want to know that I'm filled with God's Holy Spirit. That is the purpose of the mystery of the Incarnation. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.